You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, there's a a well-known verse in the book of James that when I hear it, when I read it, it evokes in me some strong mixed feelings. Strong feelings and mixed feelings. The verse is from James 1 and 22, and it says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It seems that James was aware that even in churches, there can be people who will hear what God's Word says, but then not apply it to their lives. And, uh, and that, that phrase there, uh, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, that, that really lands on me and evokes some strong mixed emotions. On one hand, I, I feel a strong sense of agreement with that. Like, like, yes, I mean, biblical faith does not consist merely in what I know or what I say I believe, but it's also evidenced in what I do and in the life that I live. And as a Christian, there, a few things are more harmful to our testimony and our church's testimony than hypocrisy. And so we have a sense of strong sense of agreement. Even as a pastor, I think, you know, I'm concerned about empty forms of religion amongst our people sometimes and a lack of application. And so uh, we ought to together hate every kind of fakery in our lives. And so on one sense, I feel a strong sense of agreement. Yes, be doers of the word and not hearers only. But I also, when I hear that, I feel, if I'm honest, a sense of embarrassment. Embarrassment, because as much as I'm bothered by fakery and others, I really squirm when it's exposed in me. Then maybe you find the same thing as well. How many times have you or I found ourselves going to a church service and hearing a word from God, been convicted by it, and, and even committing to making a change and applying it, but by the time we're home, our resolve is weakened and our spirits have cooled and, and we don't follow through. How many times have you, in your Bible reading, seen that there's a, there's a sin that I need to confess or an example to follow or steps of obedience I need to take, but we just don't seem to get around to it? And well, it's not long before we hear a verse like, be hearers of the word, or sorry, be doers of the word and not hearers only, when it kind of makes us squirm and feel a little exposed. And what's even more troubling is the frustration we sometimes feel when you just can't seem to get over the hump, as it were. Like, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Like, there's a desire in you to honor me and live for me, but the power to do it, it's just just often, so often not there. And many professing Christians, many professing Christians have burned out trying at something they just can't seem to get after. It's like, It's like for some of us, it's like a a puzzle with a couple of pieces missing. We're looking to find those pieces, to fill the gap that we feel that's there, that gap that exists between what you know and what you do, the gap that between what you profess and what you practice. How, How do you close that gap? How do you close the gap between inaction and action, between God's word and our walk? How do you how do you do that? Can you even do that? Well, I want to show you today from Scripture that, yes, you can, 
And there is indeed a way to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In fact, we're going to see that not only just written for us, but we're going to see it in the example, the living example of a Moabite woman named Ruth. We're going to see in her example, there, there is a way for us indeed to be doers of the word and not hearers only. But we're also going to see that if we're looking in ourselves on our own, we're looking in the wrong place. If we're looking to close the gap from my own resolve and my own resources, I'm looking in the wrong place. We're going to see that we've got to look outside of ourselves for some very sufficient needed help. So I want you to see that. We join me in the book of Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 2. We were, uh, about a month ago, we were started into a, a teaching series in the book of Ruth, and then I went away for some weeks, and now we're back. And uh, we're back in the book of Ruth. Our teaching series is called Experiencing God's Goodness in Life's Bitterness. I wonder if you have tasted or been tasting some of life's bitterness. It's a real thing, this bitterness in this life. And as we read the story of Ruth, we find that there are some people that they knew all about it long before you or I were ever thought of by, by our earthly parents. There were these people who lived many, many, many years ago who tasted something of life's bitterness. The, the story of Ruth, if you recall, begins with a woman named Naomi. And Naomi and her husband Elimelech found themselves in a crisis, a bitter crisis, where there was a famine in the land and their home of Bethlehem. And they were, they were out of food. And in a desperate situation, they made a drastic decision to move to another land, in fact, another nation, to the country of Moab. And they journeyed there because, well, there were crops there and there was a subsistence living they could perhaps eke out together and try to make a go of it there. And, and so they did. They went from Bethlehem to Moab, and they went, went, went with them, or their two adult sons, Mahlon and Kilion, and they went there, and during their time in Moab, there was two weddings, two weddings. Their sons both married Moabite uh, women, but there was also three funerals. Life's bitterness struck Naomi when she lost her husband, Elimelech. He died, and then as if, as if that wasn't bad enough, she lost Mahlon and Kilion, her husband and her sons had died. And you remember, she was in this, this desperate place of, of sorrow and grief. But then she heard that back home, the famine was over. And she made the decision to, after 10 years in Moab to head back home to Bethlehem where, the, where food had returned. And with her in tow, you remember, were her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And on the way home, you remember, she tried to reason with her daughters-in-law to, listen, don't follow me. This is crazy. Don't, don't come after me. I, I'm a widowed woman. And in that time, in that place, she had no prospects of a future on her own. All she could do at best would be to take care of herself. She couldn't offer these women anything at all. She said, go on back home, at least to your family, and, and try to start over back there. And she reasoned with them and played with them. And finally, Orpah, she saw the light, as it were, and decided to go back home to Moab. But Ruth was and Ruth gave her that her, her dogged commitment. And that famous line in Ruth 1 and 16, she said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. She says, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall by my, be my people. And listen, and your God, my God. She had made a commitment to the God of Israel and she was like, stop asking me to abandon you because I ain't. And so you remember what happened? 
They end up back in Bethlehem, and the people see Naomi. They haven't seen her in a decade. And they're like, is that Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has marred me. He's dealt me a bitter hand. And at the end of Ruth 1, we find this woman, Naomi, in a very bad place, emotionally and spiritually. And she's there saying, I went away full. I've come back empty. I've got nothing. God is against me. Only you and I could see at the end of Ruth 1 that she wasn't totally empty. And while she felt like she had nothing, she had more than nothing. She had Ruth with her. And when we come to Ruth chapter 2, we begin to see just how much of a blessing Ruth was to Naomi. Now, this begins, we begin in Ruth chapter 2 by meeting a man who's going to play a big role in this story as well, a man named Boaz. And Boaz, if you recall, Boaz is the man. He is the man. One of the manliest men you'll ever meet. And here he is, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, so he's related to Elimelech who died. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So, verse 3, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now, just a pause here in the middle of the sentence to give you a sense of what she's doing. She's come back home without wasting any time. She's come to her new home, I should say, Naomi's home. Now, Ruth is in her new home. Without wasting any time, she's like, I'm going out to get us food. And what her plan is, is she's going to go out to the fields where the harvest is happening, and she's going to go along behind the reapers, and whatever they've missed, whatever they've dropped or forgot to pick up, she's going to gather, and she's going to try to bring home something that her and her mother-in-law can live off of. And the scene is this. When she goes out to the field, understand, in antiquity, it's a bit of a different situation than in our day. In our time, you think of going to a field, and you imagine a field belonging to somebody, and it's got fences around it, maybe even roads dividing it from another field, and that's so-and-so's field. That's your field, and this is my field. In those times, in antiquity, they didn't want to waste good land building fences and roads over it, so it was just one great big field with plots of land that belonged to this person, that plot belongs to the other person. She's going out to a huge, vast field where there's a great harvest going on. Different parts belong to different people. And it's important for you to see that because there's something that just so happens here in verse 3 that's pivotal for her life. So verse 3 again, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz the manliest man in the Old Testament, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, that's, you just got to hold on to that. When we get to the next chapter, this is going to figure prominently. But we'll circle back to that another time. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. <laughs> just so happened. She just so happened to go into his field that day, and he just so happened to come out of town, out into the field. And notice what happens. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz saw, said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So he, he sees Ruth. He's like, who, whose household is she from? Who is she? What, what's her story? Where does she come from? Verse 6, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, 
She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young man not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Now, just to pause here for a second, I infer from this that Boaz had already heard all about Ruth. Remember, Naomi's known in town, and after all, they're distant relatives, like through her late husband. And I infer from this, he's heard about, about Naomi coming back and got this Moabite woman, and she's the, the daughter-in-law, and, and, and that she's living with Naomi and going to take care of her. And now, when he comes out the field, he says, who's that woman? He says, well, that's, that's the woman that came back with Naomi. The light bulb goes on for a while. Oh, I've heard about her. I think that's what's going on here. So he says, all that you've done, verse 11, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you left your father and mother and your native land and have come to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now here's an important line. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Read that again. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, that's an important line because we are thinking about this gap between knowing and doing, this struggle we have sometimes about not just being hearers of the word, but doers also of applying God's word. And, and we, we wonder sometimes, how do you, how do you live for God? How do, you, how do you close this gap? How do you live this Christian life? And Ruth here shows us, gives us a glimpse of this because we read her story and we realize she had some significant challenges. She had some serious sorrows. I mean, we look at her situation, we think the sorrows of herself being a widow, and then all the grief that's there as well, her beloved mother-in-law Naomi, her grief in her sorrows, we might wonder, how did she do it? How did she press on without being overcome by bitterness over her circumstance? Naomi was overcome by bitterness, but, but Ruth wasn't. How did she do that? How is it she's able to sacrificially serve the way she is? I mean, to leave all that she knew, and to follow this grieving woman who, let's just call a spade a spade, is not doing good. She's not in a good place, and yet she follows her and commits herself to her. How did she do that? How was she able to find the courage she needed to go out as a single woman in antiquity by herself? Think of the vulnerability 
She's out there on her own in big open spaces and people coming and going. The physical risks were real. Not to mention the emotional. She's a foreigner. She feels it. She knows that she is. And the, the derision that she expected that she would encounter. How did, how did she press on through this? How did, how did she go all in on this God of Israel and, just, and joining up with him? How did she do it? And how are you going to do it? How do you do it? How do you find the resolve that you need, the courage you need, the strength you need to live for the Lord, to love your spouse, to care for that aging parent? How do you do it? Well, Boaz tells us how. He shows us, holds up for us the example of Ruth. What did Ruth do? Well, it says here in verse 12, she took refuge under God's wings. Another way to think of it is she hid herself under God's wings. I love the picture he uses here. He uses an illustration of a bird, a mother bird, and the wings, and all that that means for the little baby chicks. You know, little baby chicks, there's, there's a, a predator coming. What do they do? Just get under mama's wings. They're out of sight, and they got mama to defend them. And not only that, not only are they safe there, they're provided for there. They're cared for there. That little bird goes under mom's wings, and everything that little bird needs is just right there. Its sustenance, its strength, its security is right there. Not from the little chick, but from mama. And what Boaz is showing us here is that that's what Ruth did, only with God. God, Ruth, in her life, has made a commitment, a trust commitment. She has entrusted herself to the living God. She has heard of this God of Israel. She's persuaded that the God of Israel is worthy of her trust. And by confession and in action in her life, by faith, she has committed herself to this God. Come under his wings. And that's how she's able to do what she's doing. Because of him and the strength that he supplies. Psalm 57 verse 1 says this. The prayer of the psalmist is, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. That's Ruth. Be merciful to me, O God. I hide myself in you. I'm banking on you to provide for me what I need, to be the strength that I need, to be my source of provision. I'm banking on you to give to me whatever it is I need to do what you want me to do. I'm not looking in me. I'm not finding my own resolve. I'm not looking in the mirror, pepping myself up every day. No, I'm banking on you. And that's how she's able to do it. And loved ones, that's how you're going to be able to do it too. I mean, think of Ruth. Did she have fears? Well, sure she had fears. Of course she had fears. But she overcame them, not by digging deep and pretending there's no danger, but by banking on God to embolden her. And to have his hand upon her. Where does she find the strength to come from her own country to a new country? To venture into fields where she was a foreigner, clearly stood out. How, how did she have the, the boldness to ask for permission to glean in Boaz's field? Well, it wasn't because she was particularly spunky. It's because she had God in her life and she trusted God and banked on him. And whatever her personality makeup may have been, at the end of the day, Boaz points out the difference maker in her life is that she came under God's wings and entrusted herself to her. Where did she find the steadfast love for Naomi? I mean, never mind Naomi. Who cares about Naomi? What about the person in your life that's hard to love? 
Maybe it's the person you're married to. Maybe it's the person you're parenting. Maybe it's someone else in your family or in your circle of friends or in your neighborhood, and God has called you to love them, but they're hard to love. Don't look at them right now if they're in the room. Just look at me and listen to me. (laughs) Where are you going to find the strength to love them? Well, you can dig deep in you and read poetry and sing songs to yourself and get read yourself and, and, and repeat mantras to yourself. You can try that. That'll work for an afternoon, but it's not going to work for a week or a month or a lifetime. Where are you going to find that strength? Well, Ruth says, here's what I did. Boaz says, here's what Ruth did. She trusted God and leaned the full weight of her faith, her soul, her life on him. She hid herself under his wings. Here's the principle. The power to do doesn't come from you, but from the God in whom you trust. The power to do. It's the power to live for the Lord. The power to love people. The power to be faithful. The power to close that gap between hearing and doing. It doesn't come from you. You're not going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're not going to find some third or fourth gear in your guts that's going to help you get through. No, that's not. You can try but it's exhausting and it won't work. The power to do doesn't come from you, but it comes from the God in whom we trust. That's Ruth's testimony. It's also actually, when you think of it, it's really at the heart of the gospel message, the good news about Jesus. God will have mercy on anyone who will humble themselves before him, who will take refuge in him. You know, Jesus came into the world to bridge the gap that exists between us and God. He died on the cross to remove the barrier of sin. Wonderfully, Peter says that Jesus came to bring us to God, where at once we were enemies of God. Because of Jesus, we can find friendship with God, and we can find refuge in God. But you know one of the most common problems that people have with this good news of the gospel is that they won't do it. They won't trust Jesus encountered that. Not long before he died, he stood and looked over the city of Jerusalem. And he cried out with these words. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is like, How often I've so longed to gather you together to find salvation and security and significance and purpose in me. How long, have I, how long I have longed for you to trust me, to come to me, to bank on me. But you won't do it. Loved ones, the good news of the gospel is that God will indeed have mercy on anyone who will humble themselves. And the wonder of wonders is that Jesus has made the way through Jesus Through Jesus, we can hide in God instead of hiding from God. Through Jesus, we can hide in him instead of hiding from him. Some of you today are hiding from him. Hiding from him, trying to cover over sin in your life with a sense of self-righteousness. Trying to justify yourself. Trying to somehow prove yourself. Stop! Stop! Lay it down. Stop trying to be your own savior. You can't save you. But Jesus can. How he longs even for you today to come under his wings and find salvation from him. And you can do that when you look to him with the eyes of your heart 
and trust him. You say, well, how do I do that? Tell him. Jesus, I need you. In fact, we're already saying it. Lord, I need you. I need you. And the wonder of wonders, when you, when you trust him like that, he bids you to come and welcomes you under his wings, as it were, where you find forgiveness of your sins. And you enter into an abiding, unbreakable relationship with God where he goes to work in you, doing what he does for those who trust in him. Just like we see in Ruth's life. The power to live this life, it comes from God. And what does he do when we trust in him? He gives us what we need. We find in him the resources we need, the faith we need, the strength we need to do what he has put before us to do. Closing the gap between hearing and doing doesn't originate with me, but with God and his goodness and his grace. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He said this. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So how, how am I? I am what I am. By what? By God's grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than, all, than any of them. So did, did Paul labor? Did he, did he obey? Yeah, he did. But then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. How did Paul, how did Paul serve God? How was it that he was a doer of the word? It was by the power that God supplied him, the strength that God supplied him, the grace that God gave him, not from Paul himself, but from God. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4 and 11. He says this, Whoever serves, do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, if you try to do something on your own power and it works out, well, then you get the apply. Hey, way to go. Good job. The only problem is, is if you've been at that long enough, you know how exhausting it is and how it doesn't ultimately work. But when you trust God, you look to him and say, Lord, I need you. You, you got to come and help me today. I'm banking on you, totally on you. Then when he shows up, he gets the glory and the praise. And we get the joy of seeing him at work and being used of him. That's what Peter's trying to tell us. How about Philippians chapter 2? Uh, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Uh, Philippians 2, 13 is one of my favorite verses. Verse 12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if you've been around this church long enough, you hear this verse all the time because it's one of my favorites. It so speaks to me. I love it. It thrills my soul. It is God who works in you. Dear Christian, who's working in you? God, three, four people heard that. Okay. Dear Christian, who's working in you? God. God's working in you. I mean, let that land on you for a minute. That's a lot of power. He spoke the universe into existence. He's got some resources. He can do some things. God's working in me, both to will. This is the part that blesses me so much. Because I find one of the biggest problems in my life is me. And my own desires conflicting and not being aligned with God's desires. But what he does is he works in my heart to make me want the things that he wants that are actually the things I truly want. He works in me to will and then to work for his good pleasure. So how are you going to close the gap between being a hearer and being a doer? God! God's the answer. He's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The power to do doesn't come from you, but it comes from the God in whom we trust. For Ruth, loving Naomi and doing what she did was the evidence of and the result of taking refuge 
under God's wings. And I'm calling on you today to not go out there and be a Ruth. No, I'm calling on you today to, like Ruth, to trust God to help you to do what he's put before you to do. I mean, let's just put it in real practical terms. Some of you are dealing with, you're ministering to, caring for aging parents. How are you going to pull that one off? With joy, in faith. You're going to do it by trusting the Lord. He will give you the resources to do that in a way that's honoring unto him. Maybe you're parenting a child right now and it's not going as well as the books prescribe it to go. How are you going to do that? Well, you can keep telling yourself things. You can keep listening to those podcasts. I'm not against them. But I got another idea. Beg and plead God to help you. Pray like it depends on him, because it does. Trust him. Come under his wings. Say, God, I need you. I need you. How are you going to win this battle for sexual purity? How are you going to do that? Well, just like Ruth was able to do what she was able to do, it wasn't by her own willpower, it wasn't by her own strength, it wasn't by her own resolve. She didn't go take a class and learns eight or nine steps to doing it. She trusted God. And those practical helps have their place. But they're nothing compared to coming under God's wings and saying, God, I need you. Father, Daddy, I need you. The power to do doesn't come from you, but from the God in whom we trust. That is how you close the gap. Getting near to him, leaning on him, counting on him. He gives the help. He gives the guidance. He gives the strength. He gives the encouragement. You say, where do I begin? Tell him, I need you. God, it's all you. I don't have it. I can't do this. I can't do it on my own. I need you. That's what Ruth did. She said, I'm all in with this God. And she was. And the evidence of it was showing up in her life in her love for a woman who I suspect was difficult to love and laboring in a situation that was far, far from ideal and finding courage to step out and do something that would have taken a lot of courage. She didn't find it in herself. She found it from God. The power to do doesn't come from you, but from the God in whom you trust. Now, when you do this, when you trust in him, I have faith to believe that you're going to see some things happen. In fact, I want to just highlight for you three things that I believe that you'll see happen as you come under God's wings, as you trust in him, like I'm calling you to do today. When we trust him, when we come under his wings, we can expect, firstly, that we will exhibit his character, that we'll exhibit his character in our lives, like something of who he is and what he's like will be evident, visible, manifested in our own lives and how we carry ourselves and our conduct. Not perfectly, but there will be a resemblance in time as he works. I mean, you see it in Ruth's life. I mean, Ruth had a reputation and it wasn't just the one that she achieved on her own. It was all because of God's grace in her life. And the story had been told. It was all over town. Even Boaz, it seems, had already heard it. And then when he saw her, he realized, that's the woman I've been hearing about who left her homeland and came here with her mother-in-law, just the two of them, to, to eke out a living together. They were destined, from their perspective, they were destined for poverty. And yet, 
Ruth was willing to join herself to this woman in love and faithful love and to care for her. Well, well, where did this come from? It came from God working in her life, and it was manifest. It was evident. And in fact, part of what we're reading here is Boaz encouraging her and affirming her in this. But we also see this, this godly character in Boaz, don't we? I mean, we've already seen here some real kindness. Wait, wait, look, wait to see what happened in the lunchroom. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, sorry, I should just pause here for a second. Sorry, this gets really good in a second, but listen. I they're gonna, don't want to spoil the story, but they're going to get married in the end. Okay, they're going to get married. So hopefully I didn't ruin the story for you. It's going to happen. And um, I don't think, I don't think at this moment, at this point in time, that either one of them are thinking about marriage to each other. I'm, I'm actually fairly certain of it. That neither of them are thinking that. He, he is caring for her, showing kindness to her. He's heard her story and knows Naomi. I'm pretty sure that Ruth, on this day, hot and sweaty in the field, just trying to, trying to bring home something for her and her mother-in-law, she's probably not thinking of marriage to Boaz. So I don't think there's any romantic fire coming yet. There's going to be sparks. Don't worry. There's going to be love and a wedding, and it's going it's to work out great. But right here, right now, in the lunchroom, I don't know that that's happening yet. But I will say this, just as a little aside. It's a special thing when the first thing that attracts you to another person is not that outward appearance, but rather their godly character or heart. Boaz and Ruth find each other very attractive before they find each other attractive, if you know what I mean. And I would say this to you. If you are single and seeking, here's the advice I often give to people. Focus on being the man, the woman. Focus on being the person that the person you want to marry will want to marry. Focus on being the, per, the, the person you want to marry. What's the spouse you're looking for? Oh, I'm looking for a love, who loves Jesus, who, who's a godly man, a godly woman, who's a person of character and integrity. Okay, so you, by God's grace, work, focus on being that man, being that woman that that person is going to want to marry. The person you want to marry will want to marry. You understand what I'm saying? Before the sparks fly here, these are two people that find each other, that see each other, incredible attractiveness. And what's attractive is God. Which brings me to another little pastoral point of application. This is what you should find attractive. And all the world's focus on physicality and beautiful. I don't know. What did Ruth look like? I don't know. She might have been gorgeous. I don't know. But we don't read about that. But there's a, there's a wonder here. Boaz is marveled at this woman and who she is. Dear brother, dear brother, let Christ and her be the fascination. Pursue after that so you can live together for the Lord. I mean, in the end, in eternity, that, that is what's going to matter. Do you hear me? Okay, that's not even in my notes. That's just for you, for free, okay? Okay, back to the lunchroom. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So it's kind of like a sauce. I don't think Ruth brought a lunch. I don't, I don't think so. I know it kind of sounds funny. I, I, wrecked, I said it to half be funny, but I, also the truth is I don't, I don't think she brought a lunch. I don't think she had anything in the fridge at home. She's there trying to get something together. Hopefully at the end of the day, they'll have something to eat. So he shows kindness to her and says, here, come eat with me from my food. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Make a note of that. We'll see that in a second. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also 
pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. In other words, leave lots behind so she can gather, she can gather much. What do we see here? We see godly, compassionate, gracious character in Boaz. And where did he get that from? Did he take a class in being a good guy? Read a few books? No. He also hid himself under God's wings. The godly, the character we're seeing here is in line with, with, with godliness. The love that God shows his people, Boaz is showing forth to Ruth. We see this godly character. And loved ones, when you trust the Lord, when you make God your refuge, when you submit yourself to him by faith, your life will change observably. Like the caterpillar and the butterfly, there'll be a transformation. And it will be noticeable. And it will be felt by others. When we trust him, we will exhibit his character. Second, when we trust him, we will experience his providence. We will experience his providence. The word providence, I'm using that to mean God being in control and very much on purpose. We think about providence, this word providence, we think in one sense, there's part of it speaks to the sovereignty of God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we mean that God is in control of everything. Providence is his purposes in that. He's fully in control, and being in control, he's got a purpose, he's got a plan. And part of his plan is providing for and caring for his people. And that's what I'm talking about here. That's what we see here unfolding in this text as far as Ruth is concerned, and then Naomi, is that they are experiencing God's providence. And I'm saying to you that when you trust him, when you make God your refuge, you will experience his providential working in your life. A providence that is always good. And a providence that's often subtle. Did you notice back in verse 3, the description the author gave of Ruth showing up in the field? Back in verse 3, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Just so happened. It just, just sort of, I mean, who knew? Oh, she just happened to be there. It's almost like he's, he's winking at you. It's just like, how, how did that go? Oh, I guess dumb luck, I guess. No, there's a God who's at work orchestrating it. He's got a plan and a purpose here that Ruth can't see, that Yomi can't see. They, they wouldn't see it until they're looking back on it. That God working, this is what God does. He, he works in ways that oftentimes we don't see it. He's always good and he's often subtle. We don't often see it till after the fact. You might be lamenting. You're like, I don't see much of God doing anything in my life right now. I wonder if maybe you should look harder. Maybe you should step back a bit and consider your circumstances. Maybe there are some provisions that God has made for you that you haven't noticed yet. Or maybe in time, you'll stand back and look back down the road you've just traveled and you've seen God putting a person here, giving a provision there, giving you faith and encouragement here at this point. Along the way God works, he's always good, but he's often subtle. And sometimes we just don't see his subtlety. But the author here is showing us that, listen, when we trust him, we will experience his providence. Well, look what happened, verse 17. She gleaned in the field until, uh, until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Now, just an ephah of barley. By the, you probably read that. If you're like me, you're like, what's an ephah? I barely know what barley is. Never mind an ephah of barley. 
It's about 22 liters of barley, which as I understand, I don't know much about barley again, but our understanding is this is quite a haul for one woman in one day. About 30 to 50 pounds of barley she's hauling back home. This is serious stuff. She's, she's done very, very well for herself. And so she's heading back home carrying this. And also, too, her, um, it says uh, her mother-in-law, verse 18, saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her food that she had left over after being satisfied. Remember the lunch table? She brought the leftovers from her lunch as well. Here's the sandwich that I didn't finish. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And this isn't in the text, but as soon as she said Boaz, Naomi's eyes lit up. We'll see why next time. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of, her, of ours. One of our redeemers. We'll understand better that later. The Moabite, Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You should keep close to my young men until they have finished all my, all my harvest. Verse 22, And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, with his young women, sorry, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. When we trust him, we'll experience his providence, his provision. God is at work in ways these women don't see. Remember, remember the end of chapter one, Naomi is bitter. God has dealt her a bitter hand. Now at the end of verse two, Naomi is feeling something she hasn't felt in a long time. Hope. And she's exuding something she hasn't exuded in a long time. Joy. Where did that come from? Well, she probably didn't realize that until after the fact. But God was providing. God was working. And she was the beneficiary of his kindness. And loved ones, when we trust him, we will experience his providence. As you trust him, there will be a lot of just so happens in your life. Like Leanne and I just so happened to go to the same Bible college when we finished high school, moving there from different cities. I'll give you another one. A couple of years ago, I just so happened to be looking for a job for a friend of mine when I saw the posting for Hope Niagara. Just so happen. Just kind of work that way. Wink, wink. God's at work in ways we so often don't see. This landed on me this week in a surprising way. I was visiting a couple who have meant a lot to me, particularly the man. He's now 90 years old. He's a former pastor, but uh, nobody, nobody has had a bigger impact on me, I don't think, in terms of my Christian life, in terms of my leadership, and certainly my preaching than Dr. Bill McRae. And I know I've shared his name with you a few times in the past. Uh, I love him. They mean, he means a lot to me. He is, uh, like I said, 90 years old and uh, going through a real tough time right now with his health. And uh, just for, forgive me, I get, I get ambushed by my emotions. I um, got to visit them uh, this week. And he's having a real problem with his health. And uh, his wife, Marilyn, was unfolding for me the story of the journey they've been on. 
that a number of months ago, he noticed something strange growing on his body and they were concerned about it. And long story short, they reached out and made a doctor's appointment, but the appointment got delayed and then it got delayed again, then it got delayed again. And so finally, by the time he got in to, uh, to get help, uh, the thing had grown and it turned out to be a quite an aggressive cancer. And then Marilyn said something to me that totally caught me off guard. She said, the appointments got delayed and the thing grew. But God was in it. But God was in it. And I was expecting her to say, but God was in it because in some happy ending, some wonderful solution came about that wouldn't have come about otherwise. But that's not what she said. She said, but God was in it because he's got a purpose and he knows what he's doing. And we trust him for what's to come. That is highly unusual faith. That is highly unusual. How do you, where do you get that from? You get it from a lifetime of trusting him. Of coming under his wings and learning that he is in control and he knows what he's doing. It's so unusual. What you expect, what you normally hear is complaining and moaning about the system and if they hadn't done this and look what these people have done. That's what, that's what comes naturally to me. I don't know about you. But when you hide yourself under God's wings, you experience his providence and sometimes it comes in ways that you don't expect. Sometimes that providence can taste bitter for a season. But just don't forget that he's always good. How about a guy named J. Stuart Holden who uh, many, many, many years ago he was, lived in the UK and he had a number of speaking engagements in, the, in uh, North America. And uh, he booked himself a, a ticket on a steamship in those days to come across the ocean. And uh, he had all kinds of speaking dates, in fact, including some, some here in Canada, in Ontario. And uh, right before he was to go away, in fact, the day before he went away, his wife felt terribly ill and had to go for emergency surgery. And wouldn't you know it, all the planning, all, it all been, the tickets paid for, the dates are booked, but what he, he had to cancel the trip and stay home to be with his wife, which of course, husbands, is the right decision, correct? He stayed home and missed that journey. And then, oh, I didn't tell you, the, the steamship that he booked the ticket on, it was called the Titanic. And then, of course, you know what happened to that. It didn't make it to its destination. And uh, on the screen there is a, uh, a ticket, I think actually it's the envelope that Holden's tickets came in, and he kept that. And he had it framed, and underneath he put a quote from Psalm 103, who redeemeth my life from destruction. Sometimes God's providences in our lives can have a bitter taste for a season. And then sometimes those bitter things turn out to be very, very sweet. And it's often in ways we could never have seen coming and couldn't manufacture. But here's the thing. You come under his wings and he will work in ways that you can't fathom, that you couldn't orchestrate, that are always good, even if for a time they're bitter. You'll experience his providence. And dear Christian, isn't that what you want? To experience God and entrust yourself to, to the one who's got this. We exhibit his character. When we trust him, we exhibit his character. We will experience his providence. Thirdly, finally, when we trust him, we will enjoy his rewards. His rewards. For Ruth, Naomi, they were well supplied for. Not only were they supplied for in terms of their physical needs of food, 
but also Ruth had employment. She had security. She even, in a sense, had community. And Naomi found herself with joy and hope. And for the first time in a long time, the prospects of a better future. These are not payments from God as though there's something due. No, these are rewards from God. These are gifts from God that he gives according to his grace. Hebrews 11.6 says that God rewards those who seek him. The rewards that we experience from God are manifold. Sometimes it's fellowship. Sometimes it's seeing him work in power. Sometimes it's being used of him. Sometimes it's assurance, peace, joy. Sometimes it's just the knowledge of his presence. But here's the point. God knows how to do good things for his children. And he delights to do good to those who will trust him. So this is where it hits the road. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? The power to do doesn't come from you, but from the God in whom you trust. Will you trust him? Will you make him your refuge? The starting point is to accept his invitation through Jesus. Jesus, remember, is the reason we can hide ourselves in God and not from God. Oh, you need Jesus. Will you trust him? Will you trust this Jesus? Look away from yourself to him. Dear Christian, will you trust him? Will you make God your refuge? Will you, will you lean on him? Lean the weight of your soul on him? Will you cry out to him even today in the face of whatever it is that you're facing? I mean, is, is there a sorrow you're enduring? Is there a strength that you're requiring? Is there wisdom that you're needing? Is there fear that you're facing? Is there renewed hope that you're seeking? My appeal to you is to make like Ruth and come under his wings. You'll find in him all that you need to do what he calls you to do and more. And as you do it, ask yourself honestly this question. What have I seen God do already? In what ways have I already seen his kindness, his sufficiency, his compassion already? As you reflect and as you think, you might be surprised at the things you'll notice that he's done already. Will you trust him? And finally, as we close, will you worship him? Will you worship him? When we worship the Lord, it's, it's a lot of things, but sometimes in some seasons... It's a defiant declaration of faith in the face of satanic attack and disappointment and difficulty when we worship the Lord in spite of our difficulties.